Good morning. How's it going? Good. Um, children, if you would like to go to the tables in the back, you may. If you don't want to, you don't have to. I see how you feel about me. All right. Um, we're in a series uh, through the life of Solomon. And so we're in 1 Kings. We're going to look at chapter 8 this morning. And before we dive in, let's say a word of prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to get to be here. God, I pray that you would bless the rest of our time together. God, this morning we specifically think of people in Houston who are feeling the effects of the hurricane <clears throat> and all the flooding that's going on there, the lives that have been lost, the homes that are flooded. Uh, God, I pray that you would meet each one of those people where they're at, that they would know your presence with them and your love. God, as we open the text this morning, speak to us by your spirit. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to all you have for us. And shape and form us more into who you've created us to be. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Um, oh, man. Before we jump into 1 Kings 3, I got to tell you. So uh, a few weeks ago, I let you know that Jenna Crick, who happens to be my wife, uh, is transitioning out of the children's director role here at Bay Marin, and that we had a candidate. And we have interviewed that candidate. We have vetted that candidate. And we have hired that candidate. Can we what? Can we? No, no, Barry, because you know that candidate too well. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Kaplan is our. Our new uh, director of children's ministry. Brian, Brian, how long have you been a part of Bay Marin? 20 years? 22 years he's been a part of Bay Marin. He has been a teacher at San Domenico for the last 13 years. He built them a maker's building with the intention he was going to transition from science, right, to being the maker's teacher. And long story, it didn't work out. So he started his own maker's business, and he's going to be our children's director. So super thrilled. Thank you, Brian. Very grateful. All right. First Kings 8. Um, leading up to this point, uh, David was Israel's king. Uh, many believe Israel's greatest king. And David has died. Solomon has become king. And uh, David had wanted to build a temple for God. And uh, God said, no thanks. Um, but I'll let your son, I'll let your heir build it. And so uh, we're skipping ahead from where we were last week. We looked at 1 Kings 3 last week. And so in the in-between, what has taken place is that uh, Solomon has built a temple for God and Solomon has built a palace for himself. Uh, it says that the temple took seven years to build, but his palace took 13 years to build. So I'll let you interpret that how you want on what may have been more important to Solomon. Uh, but he built a temple uh, for the Lord. And in, let's see, where are we going to start here? Let's start in verse 6. 
It says that the priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. So here's an artist's rendition of what the Ark may have looked like. Uh, can't see the whole thing. We're having some video issues this morning. but. Um, this is what it may have looked like. Uh, here's a picture of when the Nazis stole it. Uh, <clears throat> so there's that. And then uh, another picture here. This is an artist's rendition of what Solomon's temple may have looked like. Uh, it was an amazing structure, to say the least. So let's jump to verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. A uh, couple of things. I want to talk this morning about where does God reside? Uh, is it in a box like the ark? Is it in a temple? Uh, or is it something much much bigger than that. Uh, one commentary I read um, talking about verse 9, they said they like to read this verse as if the narrator's writing it and chuckling and saying there was nothing in there but two stone tablets. Uh, God could not be contained by a box. And while this box was sacred and while this box had great religious significance, God was not contained in this box alone. Uh, and yet God honored these religious traditions of his people. And so he honored uh, the way the ark was viewed and the way the temple was viewed. And, and we see that in, in God's presence showing up in an unbelievably unique and beautiful way. Verse 10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And so God's glory came in a beautiful and majestic way. So, so amazing was it that the priests couldn't perform their services. God's presence showed up in a unique and beautiful way in this moment at the dedication of the temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And so this is an interesting uh, word from Solomon because he's, God has said he will dwell in a dark cloud. And in, in other words, God is so mysterious. We can't fully comprehend God, where he is, and his dwelling. And the, the word for dwell in a dark cloud is different than the word for dwell in the temple forever. Uh, the, the word for dwell in a dark cloud carries a lot more mysterious connotation to it. Uh, it has a, an idea of sojourning to it, that it's not a remote place that God dwells, but the, the term that Solomon uses for dwell in the temple has to do with uh, kingly language and permanence. And so there's almost this sense for Solomon of he, he wants God in the temple and to stay there and to be accessible to him all the time. 
And yet, Solomon also recognizes that that is not the case and that is not the way God functions. I'm gonna skip to verse 27. Solomon is praying to God and he says in verse 27 in his prayer, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And so Solomon has built a temple for the Lord, and yet in his prayer he recognizes, I know, I know this temple isn't going to contain you. You are too great for that, God. Even the highest heavens cannot contain you. Uh, there are, there are a number of texts which indicate that, that God wasn't actually too interested in having a temple. He allowed it, he permitted it, and he blessed it, but he wasn't particularly interested in it. In, in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, God says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, so God doesn't need a house. In Isaiah 66, God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being. And so God doesn't need a house. And yet God blesses this temple that the people have built for him. And in a sense takes up residence there, but cannot be contained to a building. Uh, heaven is my throne. Uh, yesterday we took our kids on a little field trip to the Capitol. They had never been to the Capitol building in Sacramento, so we drove to the Capitol building, and uh, for as long as we could keep them there, which I was surprised was two hours, we were able to walk around and uh, do a self-guided tour and look at all the, the beautiful rooms in the Capitol and this amazing structure. Uh, and then we went to Old Town. Uh, Sacramento and we had promised the kids that they could go to a candy store because we don't let our kids have a lot of candy which is why they always run to the donuts uh, here on Sunday morning because it's their sugar fix for the week I suppose uh, but we had told them they could get some candy uh, at a candy store in Old Town and we found a candy store called Candy Heaven uh, and when I was cuddling our youngest last night putting her to sleep uh, we, we do different things at night to reflect on our day and I was asking her what, what were some of your favorite parts of the day and she said candy heaven and then, and then she said uh, she said it must be God's because it's heaven and, th and then she did this she has this super cute chuckle <laughs> uh, and so for rainy candy heaven is heaven for me it was hell uh, <laughs> So I, I really hope heaven is nothing like this candy store. Uh, I don't like candy. Um, I'm a more butter and salt person than sugar person. Uh, so um, yeah, I don't know why I told you that. Um, 
heaven is my throne, and it's not candy heaven. Okay. <laughs> so Solomon recognizes that even the highest heavens cannot contain God. And so Solomon is tapping into this idea of God's greatness, God's beyondness, that God is so much bigger and more mysterious than we could ever imagine. And then he recognizes also that God is near, God is close, God is intimate. And he says, despite that the highest heavens cannot contain you, verse 28, you give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And so Solomon recognizes God is great, God is mysterious, God is beyond us, and yet God is near. God is one who hears our prayers. God is one who comes near, and God is one who forgives. And this was the trajectory of the story all along, that God would be near. As he walked with the first humans in the garden, God was near. And even when the first humans chose autonomy from God and rebelled against God, God promised that he would come near. And so he comes near in this structure called the temple, but he always promised he would come even more near in and through a person. The prophet Isaiah tells us, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. God came near in and through Jesus. And God walked among us in and through Jesus. God came near. Jesus spoke of the temple. In Matthew 12, he said, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. The temple served its purpose for a time and a place, but God came near in and through Jesus, and the temple was no longer necessary because God was among us. Sacrificial system, no longer necessary because Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Jesus came in the flesh. God came in the flesh, in and through Jesus. Jesus is central to our faith. We, we gather here this morning because of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do on our behalf. We gather here this morning because we as a Jesus community, as a, as a people who want to look more like Jesus, who want to function more like Jesus in the world, who want to bring the hope of Jesus to a broken world, uh, we gather here because we long to be closer to Jesus and to live the life Jesus invited us to live. And that's why uh, next Sunday will be our, our last Sunday looking at Solomon, and then the 
following Sunday, we're going to start a series called Three Years with Jesus. And for the next three Septembers through May, we're going to be looking at different gospel texts, diving deep into the gospels and looking at what does it look like to live the way Jesus called us to live? Who was Jesus? Why did he come? And what has he called us to, both individually and corporately as a community? Who is Jesus shaping and forming us to be? And I can't tell you how excited I am about this. We, we have all three years mapped out with all the t- gospel texts we'll look at every Sunday. We're going to be doing it in children's ministry. We're going to be doing it in middle school. We're going to be doing it in high school. And we're going to be doing it with our adult community. Uh, I'm encouraging our faith communities to be studying these texts together. And I, I want to encourage our entire church to be reading these texts every week. I, I do not want this to just be a Sunday morning experience. I would love it if I hear about families talking about these texts around the dinner table, friends going out to coffee and talking about these texts together, uh, communities journeying and doing life together and talking about this Jesus and, and these texts that we're studying together as a community. And so for three years, we're going to do this together. Summers will look different, uh, but for, for three years, we're going to look at different gospel texts and, and journey together and long to become more and better disciples of Jesus, living out the way of Jesus. Uh, there's a book, if I can have the next slide, uh, called Telling God's Story. There's three volumes. And so this, this uh, came out of a children's curriculum that exists. And so if you have children, I, I would encourage you to check out this book. Uh, this is the instructor guide. There's also a big, thick, kind of crafty book for younger children. Um, but uh, this would be great for parents uh, of children to have and to read and discuss with their kids throughout the week as we journey through these. So all of this is on our website. You can look uh, at baymarin.org, and there's a Three Years with Jesus tab with a description of what we're going to be doing, a link to this book, and uh, a link to the schedule for the next three years of the text that we're going to be looking at. So, um, sound good? Sounds great. All right. Uh, so that's uh, the next three years. Man, what are we going to do after that? <laughs> I suppose a series on the Holy Spirit, maybe. Um, I'm going to skip to the Acts 17 text, Rebecca. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the first Christians, is talking to a bunch of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, uh, and he's having uh, this amazing conversation with them about, um, they have this statue to the unknown God, and Paul says, I've come to proclaim to you who that unknown God is, and uh, he quotes some of their own poets, and uh, then he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And so this this God that created the world, our God that we worship, who who came and walked among the first humans in a garden, this God who, who came and dwelt in a temple, who ultimately came and fully revealed himself in and through Jesus, this same God lives in us by his spirit. Uh, God 
sent the gift of the Spirit to dwell in us. And, and Paul elsewhere talks about our bodies as temples for the Holy Spirit. That we are walking vessels of the divine. And, and we who were from the beginning created in the image of God carry God's presence in us, his very spirit. And so God is in us and God is all around us because the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain God. Where, wherever you go, you carry God in you and God is all around you. Uh, where, where do you see and recognize God in your life because God is present in the boardroom, in the living room, in the bedroom, on the soccer field, on the baseball field, and yes, on the sidelines of the soccer field and the baseball field. Uh, God is present when you are driving your car. God is present wherever you are. God is with you and God is for you and God's love is with you, and God's love is for you, and God longs for us to draw closer to him, and he longs to draw closer to us. Uh, as you walk throughout your day and you encounter others, where do you see God? Uh, one poet puts it this way. It says, where is the door to God? In the sound of a dog barking, in a drop of rain, in the face of everyone I see. That's where God is. When, when you see other people, do you see the face of God? Do you see the divine image of God in that person? Uh, last week, we talked about Solomon, uh, God coming to Solomon saying, saying ask, ask for anything you want. And Solomon asked for a wise and discerning heart or a listening heart. Uh, and so uh, someone emailed me this past week and he said this. I asked him if I could share this. He says, hey Matt, I was thinking about questions and this is the question I thought of for this week. What would you ask God for if the answer was going to be yes? Think about that for a minute. What, what would you ask God for if the answer was going to be yes? He said, I would ask God to see people as God sees them. I say that because I tend to look at people critically rather than as loved by God, created by God, I was driving when I thought about this, and to paraphrase George Carlin, anyone who drives slower than me is an idiot. Anyone who drives faster is a maniac. But I'm 99% sure that's not how God sees the other drivers on the road. I also notice how I look at people in public, and when I catch myself evaluating people by some personal standard that I probably learned at my mother's knee, I try to remember myself that God is not looking at them that way. Uh, what would you ask God for? If the answer was yes, uh, I, I love this. I would ask 
to see people as God sees them. Um, how do you think God sees people? Who, who, uh, who's a difficult person in your life right now? And how does God see them? Uh, what does it look like to recognize the divine image in each person that when you look at each human being, you're seeing the divine image of God present in and through them. Uh, Jesus came to show us a better way forward. Jesus came to show us a better way to be with others. Jesus came to show us a better way to be human. Uh, and ultimately, Jesus came and showed us the way of suffering, the way of the cross, uh, and the way of resurrection. This morning, as we come and take a piece of bread and dip it in this cup, uh, we remember, we remember what Christ did for us. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, Rebecca, can I have that, that slide? You got it. Thank you. Uh, let's, let's just proclaim this together, shall we, corporately? Christ has died and Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, thank you. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for the life of Solomon, the story of the temple, and ultimately, God, that no structure, no institution, no box can contain you. God, while you are far beyond us and mysterious, grant us by your spirit the gift of knowing you more. I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, that you have fully revealed yourself in and through Jesus. God, I pray that we would live into the way of Jesus that you have created us for. God, I pray that we would see others as you see them. I pray that you would shape and form us to be the people you've created us to be. It's in the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen.